into the New Testament, especially in this segue book that we're in right now, the book of Matthew, which, of course, quotes the Bible, the Old Testament, more uh, than any of the other uh, Gospels. Last week, we ended with the very last of the temptations of Jesus Christ. We're going to be picking it up here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to read all the way to 11, and then we'll get into this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And so, Father, tonight as we approach uh, this most holy of texts, Lord, your good news to us, Lord, the beginning of the New Testament, Lord, we thank you so much for prophetic power, for the power of fulfilled prophecy, as we see prophecy being fulfilled in this amazing book, and, and then to see how Matthew brings it all in and and proofing it from the Old Testament. And even tonight, this, this room is filled. Thank you so much for all these people. And, and some of us are weary. Uh, some of us have had to make hard decisions. Some of us have had a hard week already just halfway through. And we need to be refreshed. And we need to hear a word from you, a powerful word from you. And so, Lord, tonight, whether it's a temptation that's happening in our own lives, whether it's something that is a uh, something that maybe a person that we know that's about ready to die or, or someone that we know that is sick or someone that we know is going through financial problems or someone that we know is going through just those trials of life, Lord. I ask that you would just remind us of them and help us to lift them up tonight, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this church, in our world. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem even tonight. Pray for the peace of Israel, that you would be the one that's in charge, that you would be the one that turns hearts to you. And Lord, we thank you for your power in our lives, even now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's truly a privilege as we've been walking through this book of Matthew and and like I told you, when we first started the New Testament, I've always taught from the Old Testament, whether it was Wednesday mornings or other Bible studies that I've done. And then when I started the Wednesday night, just going through, starting in the Psalms, going through the very end of the book of Malachi, and now working through the, the New Testament, it's truly a privilege. Now you actually see red words. You notice that, right? There's actually red words in the New Testament. In fact, every single time you come across a red word in your Bible, R-E-D, what does it mean? Jesus spoke those words. The amazing thing is you're walking through, especially the book of Matthew, when you get to chapter 5, what is the color in every single page? For chapter after chapter, there's red words, right? Whole chapters filled with red words, but there was black words before the red word. What is it that's preparing Jesus for the beginning of his ministry? It's the temptations, it's the trials, it's the experience that he's going through. Have you ever wondered why God just doesn't give you what we ask for right away? Sometimes he allows you to go through trials and tribulations. It's because Jesus did and we're followers of Jesus Christ. As we come to the very last of the temptations that Jesus is going through, Satan or the devil is coming with him with a shortcut. Just like he does with all of us, by the way. Remember the names, the titles that Matthew gives to Satan? First he calls him the tempter, right? And then Satan and then the devil. The one who is coming against the Son of God, trying to bring him down, trying to disqualify him, trying to cause him to sin. Remember the very first of the temptations. What was it? You can change these stones into bread, right? And then the second one, he took him to the top of the 
temple or this high peak of this religious building. And what does he say? All you got to do is jump off and the angels will come and save you. What was the response to both of those, by the way? How, How did Jesus respond to both of those temptations? With the word of God, exactly. And the same thing that he does here, and this may be obvious to you, but it happens all the time. I would never take a deal with Satan. I would never take a deal with the devil. But do people do it all the time? Oh, yeah. We think this is an obvious, he would never do that, right? All all he has to do is bow down, worship Satan, and the world is his. Everything is going to be done for him. But what is the response that Jesus gives? Again, from the scriptures, and again, it is obvious to us, looking back 2020, but how easy is it for us to take shortcuts? All you got to do is take the shortcut, the sin, the temptation. All you have to do is give in to that sin, and all your wishes will be made true. So what does Jesus say? And this is the important thing that we get here. In verse 10 of chapter 4 of Matthew, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Have you ever, whether it's peer pressure, whether it's something that's going on in your own life, and, and said, all I have to do is just, maybe it's something private, maybe it's something you're struggling with, whether it's an addiction or something that you're going through in your own life, and it would be so easy to give in. What, what, what's the hard road? What's the hard road? To make the choice to be faithful every single day, every single moment. For Jesus, what he is saying is here, I'm going to put the priority the one who is the one that I am in fellowship with, pure and only. I will not allow any sin to come between that relationship. Because what happens when sin comes in your life? You all know this. What separates us from God? Sin. Sin. By the way, who was the one that took him into the wilderness in the first place? Remember all the way back from last week, we, we learned that there was the Holy Spirit that took him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that tempted him. It was Satan that tempted him. But it was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness in the first place. Why? Because there was an examination. There was a refining. There was this purpose that was shown that he is the one that is going to be the one that saves the world from their sins. Is Jesus Christ perfect in every way? Yes, he is. And by the way, remember these were all quotations from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapters 8. In fact, this one here that we just read is from the book of Deuteronomy. All, all of these basic scriptures that a young Jewish person would have learned are the basic refutations of Satan himself. It's those verses that you know, John 3, 16, that can refute Satan every single time. Does Jesus love you? Or, or, Or just the basics of the Christian faith, knowing that those things are what protect us and keep us safe. Look at what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Why was Jesus tempted? For you. For you. So that you had someone who you could go to at any time and know that they were tempted in the same ways that you are tempted even now. Or Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, if we do not have, or for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we 
are. Every single temptation that you've ever gone through in your entire life, Jesus has already gone through and he's overcome them. In fact, that's the last phrase of the verse, right? And yet what without sin? Who, who, who would you rather go to? Someone that's conquered temptation or someone that has not conquered temptation? Of course, the person that's already overcome, right? Do you know that you have an advocate with the Father who right now is interceding for you with moans and groans too deep for words? That we can come before uh, Jesus at any time and know that he is the source of our strength for every single temptation. And what does Satan want to do? He wants to give us the shortcut. He wants to give us that easy out. The choice that is the one that it may not seem like a consequence now, but later on down the road, it can be a horrific consequence. It's the things in our lives that we struggle with. And all these things that Jesus went through for us were prophetically given in the Old Testament and are being shown as truth here in the book of Matthew. Now, the interesting thing is in chapter 4, we were introduced to John the Baptist, of course. John the Baptist already had his ministry, his mega church, if you will. Remember how many people were coming out to visit John the Baptist, to be baptized by John the Baptist. It says all of Judea was coming out. There was massive amounts of people coming there to the Jordan River. And what does John the Baptist do? He points everybody to whom? Jesus. In fact, some of the people that he points to are his own disciples. In fact, we learn that at the end of chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, starting there in verse 12, not only was Jesus tried, not only was Jesus tempted, but now he raises up his disciples, his apostles. Verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death dawned. Now, a lot of these places may not make very much sense, but I have a couple of maps for you. Thanks to, to John, he always has great, great ways of making sure that we can actually see this. He said, that's too compact. No one's going to see, see all the names. If you look on the bottom part there, and there's a blow-up of just the bottom part, and that's all John, by the way. John shows us that, that bottom part there. This is where Jesus started his ministry in the area of Jericho. Jericho right there above the Dead Sea. This would have been the area where he was tempted. In fact, if you go to Jericho, even today, you can take a tram that goes up to the top of these mountain areas where the believed place where Jesus was actually tempted at. And then after this area in the Dead Sea region, then Jesus went up north to Capernaum, which is the next slide here. And that's going to be in the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. So this is a long distance where Jesus is being tempted. And now he's going from the southern region up to the northern region of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but I got some pictures of that too. This is the picture that I always remember of the Sea of Galilee. You guys know her, right? In 20, no, just this last, was it this last time that she was with? Yeah, this last time to 2023. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is what I always think of the Sea of Galilee. Laughter, joy, fun. This is Susan, by the way. She'll watch it tomorrow morning or something. She goes to bed early. The next slide, you can show the next slide there. This is one of the regions where Jesus would have been giving the Beatitudes. And this work we're going to read about now in the next chapter, though those blessed are that we're going to see in the very next chapter. This would have been the region where Jesus would have given this. 
And this is at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Next slide. And this is now a, there's a church there. And if the two people there are Jeanette and Kevin, by the way, and, and they're walking up the steps. And from this view, you can actually see the whole Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, as we're coming to the end of chapter four, beginning of chapter five, he's going to be sitting on a mountain with his disciples overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And this is the traditional spot where uh, most people think he would have done that. So all, all these uh, images that you're seeing, all these pictures, all these regions, it really uh, helps us to understand, visualize, if you will, where Jesus is at. This is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these are two sons of Israel or Jacob who would have been not well known, if you will, but yet they're important in terms of the region that Jesus is speaking at because, again, it is prophetic. This chapter that we read every single year at Christmas time. In fact, let me read to you just the beginning of that chapter, the first six verses. I know you've heard this many times. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea upon the, beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. This region was a, a very unknown region. The, these tribes, they weren't the biggest of the tribes. They, they, in fact, they were little known tribes, as it says here. This region that was known for rebellions, this region that was known uh, for people that didn't live according to uh, the law or the Old Testament. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations and increased its joy. They rejoiced before you according to the joy of the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. Exactly Susan's faith on the Sea of Galilee. Do you see it? They once were in gloom. They once were in darkness. And what is coming? Prophetic power, Jesus Christ, coming to this earth, the Messiah, God incarnate, is coming to bring light. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4 of Isaiah 9. For you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressors in the day of Midian for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born. Wow. When you read it in context, it's amazing. What, what was it like before the coming Messiah? Gloom, darkness. And now when Jesus enters the world, the light of heaven has come. The light of heaven has come to this earth. This is the region where Jesus is speaking at. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, all these northern areas. But look at what it continues to say in Isaiah chapter 6, or 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called... Wonderful, counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is there power in prophecy? Is there power in prophecies being fulfilled right in their midst? And the people that are there, not only listening to Jesus, these words that we're going to see in red, are going to see prophecy being fulfilled in their very midst. Isn't that powerful? And we wonder why they missed it. Yet prophecy is being fulfilled today. We see it on the news right now. Is prophecy being fulfilled? Yeah. And is the world blind to it? Oh, yeah. Thank God that we have the scriptures. Thank God that we have the word of God. 
Thank God that we have the Holy Spirit who reveals these things to us. Going back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, picking this up again, it says, From that time, Jesus began to what? Preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, this isn't the first time we've seen the word preach before, but it's the first time we've seen Jesus preach. Okay? This is the first time we've seen Jesus preach. All this previous four chapters are all in preparation for Jesus beginning his ministry of preaching. Okay? The word preaching comes from the Greek word caruso, which means to herald or to announce, okay? It's a person who is being given a commission from a, an authority in order to herald or to announce. This is where we get the term gospel or good news. What is Jesus pronouncing, heralding, announcing to the world? The good news, right? The good news. So not only do we see prophetic power, but we see powerful preaching as well. Do you understand that preaching should be filled with power? This is not a lecture. This is not a lesson. This is prophetic power preaching being fulfilled by Jesus Christ there on the Sea of Galilee. And of course, he calls his disciples and you guys know that, of course, he had 12 disciples. And in the, the book of Matthew, we're going to learn all 12 of their names. But the very first group of apostles that Jesus calls are what we consider like the, the core group or the inner group, the more popular ones, I guess you could say. Jesus had uh, lots of followers. In fact, he had thousands of followers at, at certain times in his ministry, people that would follow him from town to town. But within that group, he had a smaller core called the Apostles. Uh, there was 12 of them. And then within that 12, there was even a smaller group, if you will, that we're going to see here. They, they would be the, the, the inner three, Peter, James, and John, right? And then the one that was the closest to Jesus, you all know this, the one that would lay his head on the lap of Jesus. His name was John. In fact, we're introduced to him right here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately... Uh, they left their nets and followed uh, him. And now, can you picture this? Where is he walking? Where is he walking? Along the Sea of Galilee, right? And, and of course, along any sea, or this is a, actually just a big, huge lake, if you will. Uh, along any lake or ocean area, what do you always see lined up on the shore? What do you always see? Boats, right? Or fishermen or, or people fishing, right? And this is exactly the same thing that was happening in the time of Jesus Christ. The Sea of Galilee was a popular fishing area. There was a lot of good fish there, what we call tilapia or St. Peter's fish, if you will. I, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a tilapia before, but the, the fish in the Sea of Galilee, and today it's always stocked, uh, but these fish would have come uh, through the river Jordan into this lake. And they would have started off small. And when they get into the Sea of Galilee, then they are able to grow to a, a fairly good size. And of course, the Peter and James and John and Andrew, uh, these are fishermen, not with rods, but with nets, okay? So that they can catch a lot of these fish at night as they're coming up to feed when the moon comes out and when they're able to see the moon, then they scoop up all these fish with their nets being dragged by these boats. What does Jesus say to these four men? Come and follow me. In John chapter one, we get a little bit of a different perspective. We see that two of these guys were actually disciples of John the Baptist. 
I don't know if you can really picture this, but how, how can a person who is this person who is a, in charge of a very large church, a mega church, if you will, John the Baptist, and he tells his disciples to go and follow Jesus. It's unfathomable, just the humbleness of John the Baptist. And remember, now he's in prison, okay? In the book of Matthew, he's in prison. So what has happened now to his disciples? They no longer have a leader, and now they've gone back to their careers. Look in John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, and again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to him, them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and, and they saw where he was staying and, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. By the, uh, by the way, the other one was John, the author of the book of John the Beloved. And now, can you imagine these two fishermen, these two young disciples being told to follow Jesus? Andrew and John. And then now with their brothers bringing them into the fold as Jesus comes to them and says, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. What is that like? A, a complete career change, by the way. Go, going from working on a, a boat to working on a boat. Go, going from fishing to fishing. Going from walking to walking more. Go, going from this region of Galilee to stay in the region of Galilee. Isn't that amazing? God just uses their talents in different ways. What does he do? Going from fishing for fish to fishing for people. Using the boats for fishing, now he's going to use them as podiums, as platforms to be able to preach to thousands of people on those hills, those areas in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to going from uh, walking without a purpose to walking with a purpose, to, to going from following a career that they live from day to day, get their food from day to day, to now receiving from the bread of heaven himself. The Messiah, the one who gives us eternal life. Continues on there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, as he's gathering these disciples, it says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their net. He called them. But by the way, and just like with most careers of this day, it was passed from father to son, right? Jesus was known as the, the son of the carpenter or the carpenter's son, right? From where we get the understanding that he probably was a, a carpenter for the first period of his life until the age of 30. Same thing with John and James. But by the way, when it, whenever we go to the New Testament, we always see these the son of or the son of this person. This would be considered their last name, okay? So it would be John bar Zebedee or James bar Zebedee. Bar means son of, okay? And so the reason why we're seeing this name of their father, who, does the, who do they have to leave? Not just their career, but their dad as well, their father. And, and can you imagine Zebedee losing part of his crew? His son, who also has to sacrifice. Who also is sacrificing. The dad as well, right? He's losing two of his kids that are going off and no longer being able to help on the boat every day. To mend the net. 
to fish every day, right? And you have to understand the impact that this would have not only on the career of Zebedee, but also on James and John as well. But by the way, James and John, they also had another name. You guys remember their other name? Yeah, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. I love this, by the way, just because my, my name is John. It's beautiful. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of Zebedee, to whom he gave the names of Boranderes, that is, sons of what? Remember, they were this John, at least John was a disciple of John the Baptist, the youngest of the disciples, the one for whom he would not die. He, he was the only one that died a natural death of all the apostles. The one for whom Jesus said, this is your mother and mother, this is your son. The one for whom Mary would be taken care of by. The one who wrote Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. This is the same John that we're talking about here. So not only was Jesus tempted, not only was Jesus tried, not only was Jesus proven to be holy, righteous, clean, now he's getting his disciples, and now in verse 23, it continues on there, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among uh, the people. Jesus hasn't done that until now. Jesus hadn't done any miracles. Jesus hadn't done any preaching. Jesus hadn't done any traveling until this time period. Why? Because he has now been proven. He has now been examined. He has now gone through the trials and the temptation. And he's showing himself to the people. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just start you right away in the ministry that you think you should be involved in? Why, why, why maybe there's these periods of time where, where there's these vacancies in your life, if you will. Uh, where, where there's these seasons where God doesn't allow you to be in a ministry or, or in a certain, maybe a certain church or something like that, or, or a certain calling that you think that you have. Do you know why? He's preparing you. He's refining you. He's equipping you. Just like he did with Jesus. Verse 24, Then his fame went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. This whole region, this whole map that we saw earlier, all the way from the northern part, Syria, Dan, all the way down through Zebulun and Naphtali, the Sea of Galilee, and then all the way to the south in Judea and Jerusalem and Jericho and all these other places that we see in these verses. The, the summary, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. It's an interesting word here, uh, by the way, this word decapolis. You guys know what the word D-E-C means? And deca, it means 10, right? And, and basically it was a group of 10 cities in the region of the Sea of Galilee or the Galilee region. It was a group of 10 cities. And Jesus is going to spend a lot of time in this area. He's not even going to go to Jerusalem except for certain times out of the year and for the last week of his life. He's only going to go down there for festivals, okay? Uh, but the rest of his career, the majority of the three years that Jesus is healing and, and performing these miracles and preaching, it's going to be in the northern area around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the very first sermon that Jesus gives in chapter 5 is there on the Sea of Galilee. Look at what it says there in chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. 
And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. And you guys know what this is called, right? This multi-chapter sermon, that all these red verses, all these red chapters, starting here in chapter 5, going all the way to chapter 10, just verse after verse, lesson after lesson, parable after parable, as Jesus is sitting on the mountain, and who is he talking to? His disciples. By, by the way, later on, he's going to be in a boat in the same area, preaching to thousands of people there on the mountain. That's a different area in terms of how he does it. The reason why he's doing it this way at this point is very intimate, right? He's sitting like a, a, a picnic, if you will. And then people uh, start to gather around this teaching, this preaching, as Jesus is explaining these truths to his disciples. Now, we call it the Beatitudes, right? If you've ever maybe read a book, there's an amazing book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just on the Beatitudes. It's absolutely amazing. I always recommend it to people. I think Kevin has my copy. Do you have my copy still? Yeah, so if you want the copy, you just ask Kevin. He'll, if he hasn't finished reading it or anything like that. But the word Beatitude means blessedness, supreme blessedness. Every single one of the verses at the beginning of the teaching, the preaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples and then this gathering crowd always starts with the word blessed. And you all know what that word blessed means, right? It means happy. Happy are you. Happy are you. Happy are you. Happy. Are you? Look at the very first one there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a, a statement and then another statement. There, there's something that may feel like that there's no way that would make me happy until you read the second part of the verse. It's just like the Proverbs, if you will, right? The, these contrasting terms, this temporary statement bookended with a eternal truth. That this temporary uh, thing that can happen in your life, uh, being meek or mourning or going through hard times in our life and then being bookended with this eternal True. Which is better, temporary or eternal? But which do we always see more of? The temporary feels like it's right in our face all the time. And it's hard to concentrate upon the eternal. We focus on our problems. We focus on our trials. We focus on those things that, that weigh us down rather than relying upon God. Look at these contrasts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On earth, they're poor in spirit, but in heaven they are. Have these amazing blessings. They inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or, or the next one, the temporary is mourning. And what's the next one? They shall be comforted. For how long, by the way? Forever and ever. Mourning, yes, it, it happens in this world. It, it, even in my own life right now, there's mourning in my life for a friend. But I know it's temporary because one day I'm going to see him again. Or, or the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You guys know what the word meek means? Yeah, that's part of it, and it's really an amazing term that comes from that, the word humble. But it actually, in the real sense, it means power under control. Power under control. You don't exude it. You don't brag about it. It's the understanding of where real power comes from and then submitting to that power. Was Jesus omnipotent? Was Jesus omniscient? Was Jesus all these omnis? Could, could he at any time 
literally done anything he wanted to. And did he keep it under control? From the cross, could he have come down? Yes. But what did he do instead? Power under control, submitting his will to the Father's will. Not doing what Satan told him and just falling at Satan's feet and everything being done according to the will of Satan rather than the will of God. The shortcut, if you will. This word blessed or happy, these terms that we see here are being prophetically and powerfully preached about and they're in direct contrast to the very last book that we just read about a month ago. The very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Remember the book of Malachi? It was only four chapters long. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 15 they were saying a much different blessing back then. And we talked about this when we were going through the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 15, it says, So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. What was the mantra of the day? The proud are blessed. Those that, that take life by the horns, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, the American dream, if you will. But back then there was no America. But it was the whole idea of understanding that even back then, even today, it's the same thing that we teach in our own country. You can do it by yourself. Just be proud. What does the Bible say? This is why Jesus is coming. This is why Jesus is saying uh, these beatitudes, these blessings, this happiness, if you will. Blessed are the meek, not the proud. Blessed are the humble. It's not those that are proud that are going to be pleasing to the Lord. It's going to be those that are humble. Look at what it says there in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again. That direct contrast to the second part of Malachi chapter 3, verse 15. They were saying wickedness is what we should be doing. Have you ever eaten so much that it made you sick? Have you? Where it actually went beyond just being full, where you actually felt like you had to puke? Why? What happens with over-gratification? overstuffing yourself. It's one of those things that actually doesn't fill you. It makes you worse, right? What happens when you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Who, who is the bread of life, the living water, the one that can truly satisfy? And, and by the way, as Jesus is doing this, he's speaking about himself. And every single one of these, he's, he's going to be the fulfillment of every one of these things. Was he meek? Was he humble? What, was he the one that understood what it meant to mourn? And did he fulfill every single one of these blessings? Was he the one that was sitting in their midst that was feeding them spiritual life? Spiritual nourishment. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, every single one of these powerful statements that are being preached from there at the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is discipling his apostles, he's speaking powerful truths to them. Fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, there is a caveat here. There, there's a, a condition, if you will. This isn't just a, a persecution for being stupid or for disobeying. You, you get what you deserve in that case. But what happens when, you, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake? 
Who's the one that sees? Who's the one that rewards? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The power of preaching is revealing the truth about someone that is better than the preacher. Revealing the truths of God's word. Not pointing what I'm saying about myself, but about the word of God. This should always be the criteria for every single sermon you listen to, whether it's online or at a church. It doesn't matter. Who does the person that you're listening to speak more about? Themselves or Jesus Christ? Where do they start at? Do they, do they start with some sort of antidote or some sort of personal story or whatever? And, and not to knock those, yes, we, there, there's times where we emphasize a certain point or want to make a point. But when it's the emphasis is all those things about you, what is it? I, I can just go to any show or comedy or anything like that and listen to anyone else, right? But what is the sermon, what is the preaching supposed to be about? Word of God. Always. There's a contrast in every single one of those of, of the temporary versus the eternal. And when we have that perspective, we are blessed or happy. When we become more heavenly minded, if you will. The very last blessing here is in verse 11. Now, the first eight here, the first grouping here, you, you see a, a certain format, right? They're all grouped together. But then the very last one, verse 11 here, this last of the blessings, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. And again, there's a caveat. There's a condition this isn't just people talking behind your back because of something that you've done. No, th this is something that has a condition falsely, when they falsely accuse you. When, when, when you feed and get a ticket, guess what? You deserved that. That wasn't a persecution for Jesus Christ's sake, okay? You deserved that. You broke the law. But if something happens where you go against the, whether it's the teaching of a certain person or, or the government itself because of Jesus Christ and you are persecuted, there's a blessing in that. Why? Look at what it says there. When you are all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven and by the way how long do those blessings last how long do they last forever where where moths can't touch right where rust can't destroy those, those things that last forever and ever but the persecution is temporary persecution lasts for a short time period. It may not seem like it in the persecution, but it is temporary. It's just for this time period. But how long do the rewards last? Forever and ever and ever. Verse 13, and again, I'm, I'm sure you've heard many great sermons on this. I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard just sermons on just one verse of these sections. And it's absolutely amazing. You can dig into these verses and just see the depth and, and the meat that can come uh, from all of these verses. But at the very beginning, we see these blessings. And then now we're going to see these little, if you will, mini proverbs or, or mini sermonettes as Jesus is going through these various uh, preaching that he's doing. In the very next one in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I don't know if you've ever shopped for salt, but salt isn't salt anymore. It's not just the little blue container anymore, right? When you go to the salt aisle, the seasoning aisle now, what kind of salt can you see? 
pink and black and mixed with all kinds of things and from all over the world, right? All the all these various times kinds of salt, no longer the 99 cent things, but now they can cost lots of money, right? Truffle salt and all these various different things that you can put in salt, right? What what does salt do to your food? It gives it taste, right? It makes something that's bland flavorful, right? It, it, it takes something from being ordinary into something that makes your taste buds sparkle, right? Or, or come alive, right? I, I remember my uncle, my, my, it would be my great uncle Al. We always would go to his house on July the 4th. Always have fireworks and homemade ice cream, right? Home, he had this ice cream maker, okay? And in order to make the ice cream cold, he didn't put it in a freezer. There was no such thing as that. He would put salt in it and ice around this bucket. And this bucket had the ice and the salt. And what did the salt do to the ice? It lowered the temperature. So as this spinning wheel would go around, it would mix the cream and the sugar and the flavoring and make it into ice cream. The, these various uh, applications for salt, and I remember it was always rock salt, and we'd always put it in our mouth. And, and I remember the taste of that rock salt. It, it was extremely salty, but sometimes you would accidentally pick up a white rock, a piece of gravel, and you put that in your mouth, and does it t taste the same? Very different right? And yet they're both white. They, they both look very similar if you don't really know what, what it's supposed to look like, right? One gives a lot of flavor, makes your mouth water, and the other is dry and ordinary and sucks the water from your mouth, right? This is the picture that we see here. Salt is good for food, but once salt has lost its flavor, when, it, when it's just white rock, what is it good for? Gravel. Gravel. That's all it's good for. It, it's just good enough to put out on the road. And this is the picture that we see here. Which are you, by the way? And th this is what Jesus is bringing out. Do you have flavor in your life? Or are you dull and boring? This is what Jesus is saying. I make your life flavorful. I make your life salty. I make your life worth living, by the way. Those of you that can't have salt understand this. Okay. No comparison, right? No comparison, right? But you understand what Jesus is saying. I make your life flavorful. And you make the world flavorful. Because you in this world, as being the salt of the world, bring flavor. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Going from salt to light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. By the way, in both cases, it's always pointing the glory back to Jesus, always pointing the glory back to God, okay? Whether it's salt or it's light, okay? And you've heard these terms, salt and, and light, before. What is now the light, the purpose of the light? Do, do I take that light, that candle or that lamp or that flashlight, whatever it is, and do I cover it? It's not good for anything, right? Until you let the light shine. Until the light is you. By the way, one of the most amazing chapters in the whole Bible, Psalms 119, right? It talks about light too. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That amazing chapter that we took six weeks to go through. The privilege of being able to understand 
what it means for the word of God in every single verse of a huge chapter, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, every single verse talks about the word of God and how powerful it is. It's salt and it's light and it's meant to shine. What good is light if we cover it? You're just wasting electricity, right? You're wasting your batteries. You're wasting the flame, whatever it is. You're, you're covering it up and it's a waste, right? Until you do what? You put it on a lampstand. It lights up the whole house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our good works are defined by the fact that it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. Who is it about? Jesus. By the way, this is prophetic power being fulfilled in their very midst, this powerful preaching that Jesus is giving these red words that, that literally verse after verse that Jesus is speaking to the people. Then in verse 17, he gives this amazing statement. We're going to um, just hit on these last two here. It says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I, I did come. Uh, I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He uses this word fulfilled twice in these two verses. This prophetic power prophecy being fulfilled in their very midst, the law and the prophets speaking to them as this crowd is getting bigger and bigger, by the way. As Jesus is explaining these uh, eternal truths to them. You guys know what a, a jot or a tittle is? In our, in our language, we have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? How, how can you tell the difference between a P and an R? Have you ever thought of that? A, a P and an R look very similar except for one thing. One has a leg and the other one doesn't. That would be considered a, a jot or a tittle. It's a small mark. And in the Hebrew language, th there was what were called vowel points or points or little dashes. And, and certain of the letters, in fact, the letter Y or Yod in the Hebrew is just a little mark. It's very tiny. It would be considered a, a jot, if you will. And then a, an addition to a, a letter, whether it's converting it from a, a certain vowel pronunciation to another, the V versus the B in Hebrew looks very similar, except for a dot right in the middle or, or a little dash. And, and these are the things, these are the jots and the tittle. Is it important if your word has a P or an R in it? And the same thing with the various Hebrew letters that, that with just a small mark makes a very big difference in the word. Pot versus rock. A very small dash makes a big difference. And what is Jesus saying about the word of God? Those jots and those tittles are very important, right? Every single letter is important in the word of God. This is why the scriptures, the canon that we have, the making up of the entire Bible, every single word is extremely important in the Bible. Look at, look at what it says there. Not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And by the way, Jesus is sitting there in their midst, the word of God incarnate sitting amongst them that we're going to learn about when we get to the, the book of John. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What keeps us from heaven? What keeps us from heaven? Sin. 
how many sins. How many sins keep us from heaven? That's it. And how many do we have? Oh, a lot, right? Now, when we look at this, when we truly understand that righteousness always trumps sin, okay? Righteousness always trumps sin. Holiness always trumps sin. Forgiveness always trumps sin. Grace is always greater than sin, okay? We have to understand that. But one sin keeps us out of heaven. How do we go to heaven? And this is what Jesus is describing here. There's a standard for heaven that is even higher than the standard of the Pharisees and the scribes. You see their standard? It was keeping the whole law. Not just the Old Testament, not just the Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and the law and the prophets, not just keeping those laws, but then you had to keep all of their laws too because they had all these sundry laws. They had all these laws that were added to the weight of the scriptures themselves and they made sure that they kept them. And righteousness is even higher than that because the standard of righteousness is holiness according to who God is. God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of holiness. And Jesus, when he overcame not only all temptation, but went through the trials himself and overcame every single one of them, he is the standard for going to heaven. It's not me or my standards or the world's standards or a certain religion's standards. It's always Jesus. So how do I go to heaven if I have sin in my life? What's the only way? Through Jesus, right? I have to have the standard of righteousness in me. I love what Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says. But we are all like unclean things, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. What does my righteousness look like that I do for myself? What does it look like? Horrific. Stinky, filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind have taken us away for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. What do we all need? And this is the ending of tonight. It may not be the ending of the chapter, but it's the ending of the, you know, the sermon for tonight. How do I go to heaven? How do you go to heaven? It's only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ in my life. Did he fulfill all righteousness? And, and is he proving it right here? Is he fulfilling all prophecy? And is he proving it right here? It's only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the standard of Jesus Christ, that I have even access to the very throne room. God, every single time you pray, where are you at? At the throne room of God. You're in the very presence of God just by talking to him. And how do you have access? Through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's because of who he is and his access. Read the rest of the chapter. I know these are long chapters. And hopefully when you read these, break them up into parts. The paragraphs, if you will. And meditate upon them. Or read them over and over again. Hopefully next week we'll get through the rest of chapter 5 and then chapter 6 as well. There, there's so much truth here. There, there's so much meat, if you will. It, don't just read this to check it off, okay? Don't just read it because I told you to. Uh, read it because you want to know Jesus Christ better. Because who is the one that's speaking? What color are the words? Red. So, Father, tonight, thank you so much for your word, your red words, your black words, all, all the words of the the Bible, as we learned, every single jot, every single tittle, every single part of the Word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they work in amazing ways as Matthew brings it to light, quoting from the Old Testament, showing how it's being fulfilled by Jesus Christ here in the New Testament. It's truly a privilege as we've been going through this chapter, not only um, for myself, but hopefully for those in this room, those that will be 
listening later on, I ask you bless them for reading the Word of God. I ask you bless them for obeying the Word of God. I ask that you bless them when they read and when they hear the Word of God, as your Word says. So, Lord, as we go about our week, as we leave this building, help us not to be the same as when we came in, Lord. Help our own own lives. Maybe something that, that stuck out to us. Maybe it was one of these blessings, or maybe it was a truth from your word. Whatever it is, that, that we would actually apply it to our life, that convicting nudge from the Holy Spirit that maybe worked in our life even right now. Maybe something that was spoken to the heart of of someone in this building, Lord. That we would actually want to change our lives and follow you. And for those that may not know you personally, the opportunity is here tonight. You can come forward after the service and know that I'd be glad to share with you what it means to know Jesus Christ personally or to pray with you. Lord, we thank you that we have access to your throne room, not through a person, but through the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, help us to bless those around us, Lord. Help us to be those examples, that salt and that light to this world that is dying, is longing for the truth. Lord, we love you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.